welcome guys to another episode of uh, of Karma Podcast. And today I have the absolute honor of uh, Ove Peters, who is all the way on the other side of the globe. <laughs> so I just finished my morning coffee and you just uh, almost finished dinner. <laughs> Are you going to finish finish dinner in a, in a few minutes? <laughs> Um, exactly right. <laughs> so we, we got in touch after the the endo uh, symposium in amsterdam where we both lectured and um uh, yeah i thought we had a really cool conversation and you have a really cool story in how you became to the position where you are now um all the way to where it all started right and um Without giving you too much of an introduction, because I really love to do it, uh, to, to for you to give it yourself. Um, let's start with a very basic question, and it's uh, where did your dental journey start? Yeah, first of all, uh, thanks, uh, Jasper, for having me. This is an absolute pleasure to participate in these kinds of endeavors. Look, uh, I, I'm maybe far away from you now, but there was a time in my life that was much closer. You know, actually, I grew up uh, on uh, in northern Germany and uh, went to high school on one of the North Frisian islands, right at the Danish border. So that's only maybe 400 kilometers away from where you are, something like that. And now it's like 10,000. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a story that uh, formed my present um, position. Of course, when you look at the background that you're seeing me with, uh, I will talk to that a little bit later on, but it's certainly not in northern Germany. So my dad is a dentist, was a dentist. He's retired now. And uh, what I certainly did not, did never want to do was becoming a dentist, right? And so I started out uh, after high school and, and uh, was looking at university possibilities and degrees and what have you. And I was fortunate enough to have a reasonably good high school diploma. So I could kind of pick and choose. So I went into medicine. You know, I, I wanted to think of uh, becoming a physician and uh, um, the, the nearest university is Kiel in northern Germany. So uh, I signed up, uh, started the first semester, did the second semester, and I really didn't like it for a variety of reasons. The main reason being I really didn't have it in me to say to a family, you know, your, your child will die and uh, your grandmother is, uh, is, has cancer permanently uh, under, under duress and what have you. And in the end of the day, I looked at the dental school and uh, went over there what appealed to me also was a more manually driven kind of uh, profession. You know, we had uh, made good friends uh, quickly, small cohort. I cannot deny that. And I started out uh, in the in the uh, university dental school. And this is, I, I hate to tell you, this is mid 1980s, 1985. And so, so I plodded along and uh, it was good. And one important thing happened. I was asked by the physiology department to do my doctorate, my thesis in physiology. And I hadn't really put any thought about that. This is about 1987, 1988. And in parallel to the dental school degree, uh, dental degree, I um, ended up uh, finishing my, my doctorate in, in neurobiology. And this becomes important when you look at the time, you know, me being German, 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. Right. And I had um, signed up for a, a civil replacement service instead of going to the military. And uh, my dental degree, my, my exam finished 1990. So I was slated to go back to a, a hospital to be a nurse. Right. Nurse with a doctorate and a neurobiology experience, no, no less, but a nurse. Christmas that year, uh, a letter comes in the mail and said, we are not 
we don't have any intention to ask him. So within a week or so, I had to decide what I wanted to do. I was gifted essentially two years of life. So I signed up for a faculty position, neurobiology. They had funding, you know, I had uh, interest. So we did a lot of research only for me after two years to discover that I didn't want to kill cats my whole life, <laughs> which was a very good decision. You know, I like cats, you know, I really didn't like killing cats. So um, I went into a dental practice uh, and that's an oral surgery practice in Northern Germany. I practiced uh, for, for a year and uh, this was a very good practice, referral practice. You do a lot of um, uh, wisdom tooth extraction, apical surgery and things of that nature. And I really didn't have a whole lot of experience. Of course, I even had two years not being a dentist. So it was challenging for me, but I'm, I think I managed. Uh, at, at the end of this one year, I said, this is too boring, too tiresome. Um, I don't want to do this. So I found, uh, <laughs> and you will laugh, I think I told you this, but I, I may have not. So I found a, a position in the, on the island of Jamaica as a dentist. <laughs> and so I, I, tra I traveled to Jamaica. And uh, of course, there were no restorations and uh, no, no root canal treatments or anything of that sort. But I extracted many, many teeth, probably 10,000. Uh, but I only worked Monday to Thursday. I had a beautiful weekend. You know, I was uh, I was on the most beautiful beaches uh, that you can that you can imagine. But of course, it was not going to be my career or anything like that, right? So I enjoyed it, but I had to come back. So when I came back, I said, "Huh, what should I do? What should I do?" And you will notice that uh, a pattern here is that things have to align. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's luck or, or things have to uh, fall into place or anything like that. But anyway, I applied for a variety of universities because I thought, you know, I need something that's a little bit more mixed and uh, can appeal to things a bit better. And here, the fact that I had published and had relatively high level impact level uh, papers helped me to get a university position. So I ended up not quite where you are, but not far away from that. And that's in prosthodontics. You know, so uh, being being a neurobiologist by training, you know, like how can we deal with pain patients and so forth? And I go there. This is Heidelberg in, in Germany. And um, I do a lot of work, you know, big. Uh, this is now we're talking 1994 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the time when implants became more of a mainstay kind of thing. So free lit implants we were putting in and then removable pros work was uh, like um, uh, 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 telescopic crowns and stuff of that nature and then bar constructions and that appealed to me too because it was from a from a dexterity from a manual accuracy standpoint it was very attractive uh, patient population was good however the pain patients that i was thinking i should be treating were not good patients very difficult to manage and to get to a good endpoint, right because these functional pain patients not so easy so I, I, I was fortunate to meet my now wife at that time. So that changed the direction again. Uh, and um, <laughs> I make this uh, story uh, hopefully uh, uh, interesting, but a bit shorter than it really was. But now we're not, we're not married at that point. We're married now. I applied at the University of Zurich, just going out on reading through uh, ads and so forth. And Zurich had just started... Um, uh, was about to start an endo program, mm -hmm. right? And uh, the the guy said, yeah, okay, well, you think uh, come over to Zurich and take a look at it. So I took the train down from Heidelberg 
And of course, what was the motivation? I was reaching the five-year limit that I would have had in Germany uh, that you can have a faculty position without uh, be, being promoted and, and being like a professor. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's only a time limit if you, do, if you don't get a permanent position. So I go there and uh, they make me an offer. You know, same story, the papers got me and in this time, of course, already a clinical career, teaching, teaching on the clinic floor, and doing a lot of uh, clinical work. So they gave me, they gave me a chance. Then I asked him, you know, but I have this girlfriend of mine, right? She, do, do you think she should come? And uh, Zurich was at that time really, and still is today, of course, a very good dental school. But they had a little bit more leeway at that time. So you asked me, you know, is 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 she any good? I said, yeah, she's fantastic. So, okay, she can come as well. So we came together and uh, we spent um, uh, several years in Zurich, uh, maybe seven years in total, and um, built, essentially, built the endo program that is now pretty much uh, solidly established and led by, by Matthias Sena, who was an excellent um, researcher and clinician in his own right. But at that time, we got our endo certification, both of us. Right. I got my habilitation. So we did a lot of work. We got married. <laughs> Good things happened. Uh, but after a couple of years, I said, dang, this is tiring. And, you know, it's too much work. And uh, maybe there's more to that. And I asked the leadership, uh, could I get um, a sabbatical? Could I get funding to go to the U.S.? So we went, uh, I went all across the U.S. and said, what should I do? What should I, where should I go? And I ended up going to San Francisco, UCSF. Very strong research school. Uh, rekindled some of the connections in neurobiology. Uh, very strong department. You know, I don't know if, if this is in, on your radar, the TRIP-B1 receptor. Uh, David Julius won the Nobel Prize uh, for that. And that's as close as I will ever be to the Nobel Prize. I probably was in the same room with him one time. <laughs> but, but, but very strong lab, very interesting. And as luck will have it, right? As luck will have it, we had a two-year uh, two contract. I got uh, an MS degree in craniofacial biology. The last week, I won the green card in the lottery. Okay. <laughs> so now... Uh, I can stay, you know, I was, I was supposed to be going back to, uh, to Zurich and continue there. And I actually ended up doing that because the lottery win is not instantaneous, just have the right buy for a green card and we'll get it. So it took like um, nine months or so for the green card. In the meanwhile, we had a son, a little boy. So the three of us, uh, Christine, my wife and I, and Morton, our son, the one with the cut finger just today, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we, we took off. I went back to San Francisco. They made me an offer to uh, obtain another endodontic degree. So now the secret is out of the box. I'm an endodontist by training and by trade. Uh, but um, so I stayed at UCSF for a number of years uh, after which I got an offer by a private dental school also in San Francisco, where I stayed for another 13 years. So fast forward. 2017, very well established endo program. And uh, maybe I still have a, have, my travel bug hasn't left me. So I said, ah, maybe another sabbatical is in the cards. So we, uh, we established a relationship with, with the University of Queensland here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we end up spending a year over here. 
but my my postgrads in San Francisco had implored me, Dr. Peters, you must come back, right, uh, to graduate us. So I, we did come back, and the way the the contract works is you have a retainability clause of two years. So you have to come back to pay off the money you have received for the sabbatical. Mm-hmm. So what? But they made me an offer here at UQ, and I accepted that offer, but I couldn't come because I had to pay off the two years. Now, this is, of course, the time when COVID is on the horizon. So we beat COVID by just a month because we got our visa, I have a permanent residency here in Australia. We got the visa in, in uh, January 2020. Oh, wow. In March 2020, everything shut down in the U.S., and we are trying to figure out how to fly out to Australia. Australia shut down the borders. Mm. Uh, there was no way to sell a house. Uh, it was very difficult to get our dog uh, imported to Australia. So lots of things happened. But in the end of the day, we got a flight. Dog got a flight. We got to quarantine. Uh, Sydney, two weeks in the hotel room. Not pretty. But you know what? What you got to do? What you got to do? And we land on uh, um, here in Brisbane on the 12th of July, my wife's birthday, 2020, and we have been here ever since. So now let me explain to you the background. Now you see the University of Queensland on the top here, but Australia is different from the U.S. in many ways. One way that is very different is the approach to the indigenous population. Right, and the of course the American Indians uh, are marginalized in the society for whatever reason. You know, I'm not here to judge, but the fact of the matter is they don't make an impression in public life other than owners of a casino here and there. Mm-hmm. Here, very different. So the government in the last 15 years or so has made a significant shift and has invested into reconciliation. Acknowledgement of what the um, traditional landowners, the original people, the indigenous people bring to society. So what you're looking at in the background, of course, is a, is a snake. If you see this, the snake when I move to the side, this, yeah. this snake going up and down is the Brisbane River. right? The Brisbane River kind of snakes through the city and um, it, uh, it symbolizes the way the aboriginal landowners tended to the, to the country and, and were in, in harmony with the country. So the university encourages certain things is even mandated that, for instance, before every meeting, you have to speak a certain formula acknowledging the traditional landowners and be respectful to this, to the elders and so forth, which is a very interesting shift. As long as this is filled with life mm-hmm. and not purely paperwork exercise, that's good. It's not paradise, but it's very good. And I, I like this kind of approach. For me, that's excellent. Look, I'm... I'm, I'm not mid-career, I'm almost at the end of my career, if I think about it this way, but I have another maybe 10 years of useful academic life in me, which is when we will have the Olympics here in Brisbane, which is another cool thing. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's great to feel on many levels that I'm in a location where a lot of good things will happen and the boat will rise for a lot of people in the next 10 years. And that's kind of my, my horizon at the moment. Like I said, it's a much longer story. Try to make it uh, as as uh, lively as I can, and I really uh, I'm happy to uh, answer any other questions that you may have. But I think um, I have uh, talked to some others about this, and they said, "Ah, how can this happen? You cannot be lucky all the time." No, 
good things have to happen, but you also have to put in the work at every time. You know, I've I've uh, published a lot. Yeah, I was uh, I was in the lab many hours. You know, I was in private practice in the U.S. for 15 years. So I've 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 um, paid my dues in in some ways, and I'm certainly eager to learn new things. So I learned a lot from you, to tell you the truth. And I'm not saying this because I'm the podcast, but the beauty is if you can go into a, um, a conference. There's different people, there's different mindsets, there's uh, um, a different uh, approaches for, for clinical cases and, and so forth. So it's always uh, good to be part of this group and I absolutely enjoy it. It's so, it's just such a cool story because like I've been right, I've been trying to write it down in, in, in like some kind of a time frame and it's it's just, it's amazing. And then the, the word that comes up to me uh, that connects like every thing that's that, that has been written down here is just curiosity maybe yeah right? like one of, one of the foundations that we that we uh, strive for at the karma platform is just um asking ourselves the big question it's, it's always why why are the things happening that are happening in the mouth why do patients uh, act the way they do why do we use different kind of materials and techniques um why what why is the main question and and uh, if you start asking yourself why that that drives you to this form of curiosity where dentistry for me uh, started living at one point because I just started mm -hmm. to ask myself the questions. I was a horrible, horrible dental student. Like I I almost did, uh, <laughs> did the whole college uh, in, in, in twice the time that it should be. But um, I, I had an awesome, uh, awesome study time. But I did, uh, I started my own companies. I started looking mm -hmm. around. I did, I did loads of stuff. So I, I never was like lazy, but I did everything uh, besides dentistry that I could do. But when I was graduated, I, I came to the point that I asked myself, okay, wait, I, I have no, no dental foundation for my feeling, right? And that's, that's mm. something that's, that's very um, it's very cool. But when I started out, I didn't have the idea that um, that I could do like anything as a dentist. I mm. wasn't, I didn't have the confidence. And I always blamed the university for, for that. So I always said, and with me, a lo loads of people are doing this. They said, I didn't learn this at the university, but now it comes. So um, when I have to remember something, I always have to write it down, right? So mm -hmm. I'm making this, this big sch schematics. And I did this for every block and every uh, course that I had to do at the university. So I have this big library with all the summaries from every part of dental uh, university so two years later i was I, I had an ortho case in the chair and i asked myself uh, i i remember this from university i i saw it somewhere so i just got back to the library i took my summary and there it was like i had everything that i thought i didn't learn was there so i started taking other summaries even on Prosto, like uh, I always blamed the university for not teaching me anything about centric relation, like for mm. instance. But then I took my Prosto summary and, and there it was. They did teach me. I just didn't remember, right? So from that point on, I started asking myself, okay, why is this happening? I just started revisiting my summaries, revisiting dentistry, and then it came to life, right? And and mm. there, there was, it, it gave me such a great energy. And it's what I... What I really love about you telling your story is that I fully recognize the same energy. And it's, it's really, it's really cool to see. And um, so one of the questions that I absolutely have is um, like you, you told me when 
when with the birth of your first kid, right? Um, what what did it change for you? Like because from that point on, um, as I summarize, uh, there there was like loads of moments that you ask yourself, okay, what I'm going to do now, and you just go with it. Right, and uh, I've told you the story about my younger brother, who has the exactly same approach, uh, and he, he got to to Antarctica at one point. Um, and we all had the same mindset. But for me, when my first kid was born, loads of stuff changed. What what did it change for you? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's of course a very good question. So, my wife and I didn't have children for quite some time. We wanted children, so it's, it's, it's a it's a sense of achievement and a sense of responsibility at the same time and uh, after we had one it became much so it was a steep kind of uncertain kind of pathway up to the first one and then we had to had figured it out you know you got to go and my wife was not working for the first couple of uh, of months but had to go back to she's also a dentist she's an endodontist as a matter of fact so she had to go back to to the university to work we put him into this um crash into this uh, kindergarten and he absolutely didn't like it and so it became more a different kind of center you know it was the two of us and then it was the three of us but in a way the path was not as steep after that second one didn't make too much of a difference i can tell you this the third one big difference so <laughs> in the u.s uh, they, they call this uh, man-to-man defense and then zone defense right yeah. uh, but it it changed it it changed the lookout in a way it constricted us more, but in a way it opened us more because once we could get this done, could get many other things done, right? So we had only him and he was about six months old when we went to the US. The other children were born in San Francisco. So it was a bit more difficult, but it was still very possible to move all the three of them to Australia for the first time. Now with COVID, not so. Yeah, to, in, a, in a nutshell, I think uh, in, in my own recollection, which is almost 20 years now, uh, 20 years ago, this is going to be 20 this year, uh, we um, we felt there was so much anxiety before, right? We felt uh, very grateful, a sense of achievement. He comes out after a lot of trials and tribulations. He's a beautiful boy. Everything is healthy. Mother survives and is healthy. Dad is challenged, but will survives it. So... <laughs> That that was that that was almost a breather, and then you kind of swim a little again, but swim differently. You know, it was you know I have to take give you an example, right? We had come back from the U.S. and I brought the uh, car that I had purchased in the U.S. back with me. So this is a Jeep Cherokee. So I drive around in Switzerland with this Jeep Cherokee, right, with the American license plate, <laughs> and of course that was completely not right. But I did this. Uh, I only had nine months, so it was good. But we crossed the border and we had our son, new, newborn, in the back of the car in the little baby seat and hadn't gotten him a passport. Oh, that's cool. So the, police, the police comes and, and checks if we had bought any uh, uh, like a supermarket, like uh, two, two canisters of milk instead of the three uh, or four or, or instead of five something like uh, uh, like that so they come and they didn't even notice there's a baby in the back i said oh, this precious little so look maybe this is a roundabout way to say a lot of things changed to the better to the better but some trajectory changed also it made us more confident you know, we, we didn't have to worry about that so much because everything worked out fine uh, but then 
everything that we we did, my wife and I did, was not only for us anymore, but it was for for the family as a group. So a lot of a lot of good things happened, and uh, clearly, from a from a personal experience viewpoint, you know, you kind of you sail through the world and you run through the world, you ride through the world as an individual. But as, as soon as you're no longer an individual like that, then uh, viewpoints change. That was clearly the case for me. And did it got you also more focused on your your work that you were doing? I'm not so I'm not so sure. Um, I had a focus not on the individual task, but maybe more on a pathway, right? Yeah. And uh, what I'm what I what I probably should say is it may sound like a bounce by chance from A to B, and it certainly wasn't a straight line, uh, but I had a plan, you know, I had a bit of a sense of this is what I want to do, this is what I want to do. And I clearly knew that I wanted to work uh, abroad, uh, uh, maybe in Australia, or maybe in the US, and uh, both of this has, has worked out. So maybe there was more focus without me even, let's say, uh, verbalizing it to myself. Yeah. And um, like the, the, the thing that's, that I also really uh, love about your story is like the way that you started, like in neurobiology and doing loads and loads of extractions in prosto. <laughs> and eventually going into endo, like that's from A to B, right? We, we before we restart recording this podcast, we were discussing that uh, we just had like winter time, right? With yeah. with hot cocoa and Christmas, and you guys had beach time, yes, like the summer break. Uh, yeah. You're off to dinner. I just finished my morning coffee, um, <laughs> and you started off with <laughs> with extracting loads of teeth, and now try to preserve them as long as long as possible, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, that that look. That's that's a very good question. Um, at some point in time, there is no formalized uh, specialty for endo in Germany still today. There are some courses, but it's not like uh, the the specialty training that is available in, in in the Netherlands or certainly here or in the U.S. So when I was at the university, I thought, okay, hmm, what is it where I can have this? do some good work that comes back to me uh, uh, and helps the patient at the same time. You know, endo is exactly that, right? Patient comes in to, to you in pain and if you can make the diagnosis right and you have the technical skill sets, a uh, skill set to do it, then it's immediate gratification, quite frankly. So, uh, and the opportunity was there. So it was not only by design, I have to say. I mean, if, I, if, I, if I did say this, uh, no, that's not true. So I ended up in Zurich. And you have to see the context too. This is 1994, I think, as, as I remember this right, where there was an absolute upstream in endo. Perry had really seen the heydays. Pros in some scenarios was still fairly conservative. I mean, the implants came, but that was kind of plodding along. And endo hadn't moved at all. But at that time, uh, the microscope came, nickel titanium instruments came, very specific biologic underpinning came. There was a lot of room to grow. So I, I realized that. I had a couple of mentors that uh, suggested to me that I should do this. Uh, and um, I, I was fortunate that it panned out. You know, The last uh, 20 years have been extremely fruitful and, and very um, uh, very effective in endodontics. It really changed the shape. So, so I was, I was uh, maybe part of this a little bit, but I was certainly at the right moment at the right time. So it's not so far-fetched, to be honest with you. So if you think about what a, a patient needs when you do a comprehensive treatment plan, 
there is endo in it uh, if you have an older patient for sure but even with the younger patients so in the bigger scheme of things of of treatment planning or, or patient assessment that's an important part and as a provider it helps as a patient for many patients it's fantastic you know and so that uh, that uh, worked out dexterity is is important so i have this uh, i have this interest in making small things happen it worked out for me so um like one of the things that we are really propagating through through the platform is um preserve tooth material as much as possible right not only from a prosthodontic point of view but even from adhesive dentistry and so the, as you say there's a very big um important part of endo and yet not that many people are uh in our opinion educated well enough to to do the diagnostics right etc right um is one, one of the things that we are seeing mm-hmm. around us is there there's a shift happening from people trying to preserve tooth material mm-hmm. as much as possible instead of let's mm-hmm. say it and i don't want to be uh to offend anybody but like the older dentist they say okay problem on the tooth take it out right uh, without um, uh, concerning the possible consequences that taking out tooth mm-hmm. can have. Um, mm-hmm. Is this something that, that you notice as well in, in like in, in other regions? Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, in the last maybe five years, this has gotten a lot of traction. And I think the, the base behind it is twofold, the main base behind it. One is particularly in endo, the outcomes were characterized by healing of apical periodontitis, right? If you didn't get healing, not uh, vis-a-vis, if the tooth is then extracted, it's not an endo problem, right? And so that's not that's that's not very helpful. In the last couple of years, and certainly in the last two years, it has become very clear that patient-centered outcome is not necessarily the reduction of apically uh, of inflammatory cells at the apex, right? Because the, the patient and the patient's health system really doesn't discriminate between 10 or 20 inflammatory cells. And the reality of it is that every endodontic treatment has a likelihood of some inflammatory cells associated with the apex. So when you then accept that while you still want to treat apical periodontitis, retention is the main outcome, retention of structure becomes more important. So that is a paradigm shift that people have to still make a little bit. I think we are on the verge of seeing that. But then there's the second issue, right? If you have a big opening, produce a good end of treatment with closed eyes and the hands behind your back. If you have a small opening, it's much more difficult. So you have to convince yourself that this more difficult work, maybe a longer time frame that you need to (laughs) is worthwhile. Right. And that's that's a that's a quandary because not everybody has a microscope. Obviously, not everybody has the the toolkit to perform these kinds of things. And people have to slowly but surely convince themselves that there is a tangible benefit in this. The question for for you and the question for me is how big is the benefit? You know, if the benefit is 10 percent and the cost is 20 percent higher, nobody will buy into that. If the benefit is 15% and the cost is 14%, even then, you know, but if the benefit is 50% and the cost is maybe 10%, people will probably do this. So that's the calculation that I'm doing in my head. So my job, and I I probably should say this, you know, I I try to uh, develop technologies and strategies that make it easier for, for clinicians to do these things. But the first step is, and this is my job, 
to get the concept across. And I think you're giving me the right uh, um, right possibility here to to see it. The, what is the reason that we are doing a root canal treatment? What's the purpose of endodontics? Purpose of endodontics is not to treat apical periodontitis. The purpose of endodontics is to aid in the lifelong retention of teeth. Simple as that. If you look at yourself, if I look at my parents, you know, the prime uh, outcome that I can ask for is that you have natural teeth for the whole of your life. There's, there's not much more to be said about that. That has to be our goal. As much as I love to put an implant in every, every no, I don't do that. So I don't love it. <laughs> so I think you're touching like the perfect middle ground in the discussion around um, like, uh, well, it's the cross section between like uh, biological dentistry and like the severe hardcore restorative dentistry, right? There's this, um, there's the, um, like the, the documentary about root cause. And uh, yes, you, you, you know it, of course. Um, there was but what like, you don't know, but what you don't know, Jasper, this movie was filmed here in Brisbane. Oh, seriously? seriously. I if you look at the buses, there's a city bus here in Brisbane. Uh, the scene where the guy gets his tooth knocked out was filmed at the Gold Coast uh, main beach, the Gold Coast, Southport, yeah. maybe 20 minutes down south. I spoke to these people you know, because I'm very curious. It, yeah. was, it was made when I was here, but I didn't see it being made, but I saw the output. No, no, the, the, the guy is in a bar here in Brisbane, and uh, there's a particular bus in, in maroon color, the city glider that goes back uh, in the background. So oh, wow. I, I know everything about this. Uh, yeah, it was filmed here. Yeah, that's an what, interesting what's your, what's your first reaction to the, to the documentary? Because I'm, I'm curious. Well, look, I mean, my first reaction, uh, this, I have two reactions. This is good to say this. My first reaction is, uh, how will people perceive this? You know, there's physicians in there and people that speak with conviction, but then they, they, they make silly arguments, right? Saying, okay, so uh, females that have uh, root canal treated teeth on one particular side of the body develop uh, uh, breast cancer on the same side. But that's not a scientific uh, uh, question to ask, really, because as many other women have no root canal treatments, have also breast cancer, unfortunately, on the same side of their bodies. So, so how do people perceive that? And then the next question that I ask myself is, who benefits from this? Mm-hmm. Who it, they're so glossily produced, very expensive. So who is the who? Who's behind it? So I asked that question, and the. Um, the director of this movie, the, the actor, the lead actor is an Australian from from uh, Sydney, I think. He has nothing to do with that. But the director seems to honestly believe in this. So he must have gotten money somewhere. And of course, there's the dental spa industry and some people that, you know, they, they think, hopefully, I hope, that they think they do the right thing. You know, they have some kind of conviction. I don't think they are necessarily crooks or anything like that. They are misguided. Um, but they have they must have sponsored it. You know, who who else? Implants were also uh, uh, put down, except for uh, ceramic uh, type yeah. of implants, if I remember this correctly. And then uh, wisdom tooth extraction was also put down because of some bone necrosis that occurs in the in the open uh, portions of bone apical to, to wisdom tooth extraction. So it was not a particular agenda from a, a group of dentists or anything like that. I think it was born out of individual desire. But my first question to myself was exactly that. You know, benefits from that why are we doing this uh, are, are they trying to help people uh, maybe but they're misguided that's obvious 
But and then the next thing here, I was uh, I was in this discussion with the American Association of Endodontists a little bit, and the the academic endodontics and also others would put themselves into a position say there's nothing to that, everything yeah. is super, nothing nothing can, not a hundred percent convincing if you think things through a little bit more. So I did uh, did some work in this space because for example, when you say apical radiolucent areas have no bearing to the oral health of the patient, why do you start extracting teeth for a patient prior to transplant surgery or prior to radiation, right? How can you square periodontal disease that, uh, that uh, has a significant association, according to some, with overall health, with endodontic disease that has no connection? Right. So you say, okay, this is the amount of, of uh, toxins or the number of bacterial cells we have you. But in reality, it's not quite as easy. I, I look at it as a research uh, potential, right? So I, I would like to develop a true test for inflammation that is actually detrimental to the patient, right? Inflammation that is shunted towards a regeneration a phenotype is positive. You know, mm -hmm. So that's not a problem. And just from looking at the patient, looking at a radiograph, you don't know this, right? You have to track and understand the specific makeup of the inflammatory composition of fluids and, and the components. So we've done, done some work on that. And uh, if you can take a radiograph of a patient and had a radiographically visible area, and this is like four weeks after root canal treatment or four weeks after apical surgery, you hopefully see that the inflammation is shunted towards angiogenesis, bone opposition repair, and should be predictably healed after six months or something like that. Yet another patient that shows up with a root canal treated tooth that was treated 20 years ago has to be some kind of chronic uh, non-healing configuration. These two things are different. You should be able to pick this up. We can't do this right now. No. I think I know how, but we're not, we're not talking about that today. No, but I think you're absolutely right. The only the only way to to actually measure it is to take a biopsy, but you cannot do that every time on an endo, right? Other ways, there are other ways. Yeah, so in, there, are, so I know there for periodontology and implantology of like the MMP8 um, uh, measurements, right? That you can exactly. uh, calculate the uh, the inflammatory uh, response, and uh, that's something that can be very beneficial to endo as well to measure like the the outcome, possible outcome of the endodontic treatment. Only, uh, only problem in endo is you cannot access it so easily, right? In peri, you can access the pocket directly. Yeah, exactly. We have, yeah. Tried, we have tried because there's an equilibrium between pulpal mediators and uh, and uh, curricular fluid, but the problem is how do you how do you um, average out the particulars for the pulp in the whole sea of periodontal uh, disease, if you will, or periodontal conditions, right? Yeah, exactly. But there are other. You should be able to image it. You can image it, you know, and uh, there there are ways of imaging. Um, uh, tissue conditions. And so, I mean, you have to look at, for instance, stroke or look at uh, other uh, diseases where perfusion changes happen and, and uh, the status of, of uh, tissue changes. So that's, that's, but look, it's overkill. You know, right now you cannot put like an MRI on a patient for, for pulpitis, right? Uh, but uh, there, there are other technologies that can be used for that. Yeah, and I really love your explanation um, in the discussion from the the root cause documentary because it's somewhere in the middle ground. Like you, uh, I love that you say, okay, there's like uh, limited evidence to the the claims that they are making, and what's the main purpose of 
the whole documentary and, and the other side mm-hmm. said, like, if only 1% of what these guys are telling us truth, then it, it should raise questions for all of us, right? And the thing that I miss in, in, in loads of these discussions is actually the amount of respect to one professional to the other, right? Because then, uh, as you say, I don't concern them as crooks. Um, I think that's that's the way to go because then you you respect their uh, beliefs and then you can discuss it. And when you start discussing, at the end of the day, everybody wins. Why? Because you are discussing the matter, right? And everybody uh, aims for the best uh, care for their patients. Um, so in, in, I have one final question for you and perhaps you have already answered it, but like you, you said you have like 10 more academic years, right? Let's hope it's it's 20 or 30. <laughs> um, what, what's, uh, what are the things that you are going to do in the next years? Do you, do you think like the measurements and the, uh, like the uh, objectivation of uh, the antidontic treatments is something that you will work on or? I'm, I'm trying to do this a bit and I have one PhD student working in that area. Uh, so what I'm what I'm actually trying to do here in particular, because you, you have to work in the context, the political and, and remuneration context. I, I like to think uh, the following way. So from a clinician standpoint that, that I still am, I, I can solve most of the issues on a one-to-one basis. So a patient comes into my chair and I, I think I can manage their needs. Either I can do it myself or find the right person to manage that. But what I have not been able to do is to uh, to raise the uh, population health. When I'm thinking specifically of endodontics, I'm, I'm, uh, here it's a bit different than it is in the U.S. and certainly different than in, in Europe. But uh, a lot of patients are not able to see a quality root canal treatment providing clinicians because of the way the population is distributed. So the first line of defense for somebody with the toothache or a tooth that is problematic properly is to go to a physician, get prescribed an antibiotic mm-hmm. and help uh, maybe dies or maybe doesn't. And uh, then the problem is not, is not solved. So what I'm trying to do is to develop a awareness and a political structure so that we can treat patients better. And one of the scenarios where, where this could work is if a general practitioner, a dentist, right? not, not, not a physician, a general practitioner, a dentist could provide um, a quality vital pulp treatment for a case that normally would receive a root canal treatment or the tooth extracted. Because these are the patients that come into uh, maybe the pharmacy or to the physician with pain, palpable pain, and get this antibiotic with it, with a hope to quiet it down, which of course is completely wrong, but that's what happens. So I, I'm thinking of leverage. I'm thinking of educating the undergraduate students, educating the private practitioners to um, to work with the decision makers and uh, politics. You know, mm-hmm. I work with the FBI a little bit and uh, try to do advocacy work and formulate how endodontic treatment should should be constructed. If it's less than a perfect setup uh, from uh, from uh, the perspective of providers, you know, if you are in New York City or in Amsterdam or most other places in Europe, you will receive high quality treatment within a short distance of of, of travel. In, in Northern California, you have to travel perhaps three hours or four hours to see an endodontist. And maybe you can't even get in because you cannot afford a private fee. Mm-hmm. Here in Australia, you have to fly two hours to come to an endodontist, oh, wow. three hours. And so, you know, how many endodontists are there in all of Australia? 170, right? In whole Australia. 
all of Australia, 170. And so, so, and this is a continent. <laughs> it's a big place. And there are people that live in Queensland, 3,000 kilometers away. All of the endodontists in Queensland, except for one, are in Southeast Queensland. So if I'm, if I'm in Cairns, which is about, I don't know, 2,000 kilometers or so away, there's, I think, one part-time person that occasionally goes there. Right? And so, in other words, the opportunity is there to multiply what I think I understand and can manage to make more of a broader reach to raise population. If I can be so so um, eager uh, or so ambitious, I, I don't know, but that's what I want to try. I want to try to get this better for more people than just one patient that I have in my chair at one point in time. Yeah. That's a beautiful answer and a really, really great, really great goal, I guess, right? I yeah. hope so, but 10 years, it's only 10 years, but maybe, maybe, uh, as you said, maybe 15. Yeah, Ro Rome wasn't built in a day, but we have uh, 30 <laughs> more years to go, so. <laughs> <laughs> that is no. very true. <laughs> no, I, I wanted, I want to thank you for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to record this podcast with me. As I said before, uh, I always love it when, when people are just like informally discussing uh, matters in dentistry, uh, telling their stories and, uh, yeah, like you're you're a perfect example of that. I I only had to ask I think four questions and that that was it. And we are uh, again uh, as always. I'm always going 50 minutes over time, <laughs> which is totally fine. Um, so I I want to thank you. Uh, and I wish I want to wish you um all the best. We we absolutely stay in touch. Uh, and for now uh, enjoy your dinner because I'm going thank for my you. next morning coffee because we are like 10,000 kilometers away from each other. And the fact that we That's can discuss this kind of matter uh, for yeah, us yeah. and for me, is, is like, it's mind blowing. It's really cool. It, 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 the pleasure is absolutely mine. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, have you have a good coffee. I see daylight on the outside. Yeah, there. yeah. We, we're just starting up. Yeah. My, one of my kids just came in with my, with, with his grandma and, uh, <laughs> he's starting to play with his toys now. So uh, I have to take to make sure that he will not destroy the house. Very good. Thanks Thank very much. much. Have a great day and best of luck with uh, with the next steps. Uh, like you said, keep in touch. Thanks, Albert. Cheers. Anytime. Bye-bye.